Welcome to the Grow Your Business and Grow Your Wealth podcast with Gary Helt. Gary is an expert in helping business owners put together a plan that will provide a better future for their businesses, themselves, and their families. On the podcast, Gary interviews other professionals who share his vision, and together they share secrets and strategies any business owner can use to build a better financial foundation for your business and your life. Hey, welcome back to the podcast. This week, my guest is Richard Wagner, who is the CEO of RWCO. Uh, welcome, Richard. Thank you. Glad to be here. So, Richard, uh, you know you've done you've done a lot of different things, um, and one of the things that that you and your company do is uh, help people with government contracting, right? So tell us, what are some of the, the key steps that small businesses should look at when they think that they want to start getting into the government contracting arena? Sure. I think I think that it's really three key elements. The first one is eligibility. Um, a lot of people want to do business with the government, but don't know how. Mm-hmm. The first step is to making sure that the government's aware that you exist, that you're eligible for contract work. Uh, there's a website called samsam.gov uh, that organizations would have to be registered in. That is no different than getting a driver's license. It's simply so the government knows you exist and uh, a little bit about your company background and your registration, your profile. So that's really the first step. The second step is really having an honest dialogue with yourself. A lot of people look at the federal sector and they see large dollar value contracts. My suggestion is that folks are interested in delving into the public sector in any way, state, local government, or federal They really look at what they're good at, what their firm does as a core competency, and strictly focus on that. There's a temptation, um, you know, almost like when you go to the grocery store when you're hungry, uh, everything looks good. Uh, And so what happens is you you become a master of nothing, of no real priority. So the second step after just being the minimal step of being eligible to do the work is having a pretty finite understanding of what it is you want to do. And the third is realizing that this is a multi-step long marathon process to get there. Uh, In my experience of doing this for 25 years, uh, most firms that enter the federal state government arena are not going to be instantly successful. The government is composed of people just like society is comprised of people, uh, and they're very risk-averse people. Uh, so things like partnering with other organizations that have done the work, uh, getting an advisory board of folks that come from the world in which you want to be work into uh, to establish credibility, things that address credibility would be the next big bucket, next big hurdle. And once you do those three things, you're eligible to bid the work. You have an honest conversation with yourself and what work you're going to go after. And third, you're presenting a risk uh, acceptable options to the government to actually win the work. Once you do those three things, then really it's just the the muscle memory of bidding, pricing, and figuring out what it takes to actually win the work in your industry. What is it if they find out that they do qualify and, and they, they get involved with this, what can they do to help them stand out in that arena? I think in our world, the, the number one criteria is path performance, which is basically references or capabilities mm-hmm. or work performed. Uh, and it doesn't necessarily have to be in the public domain. It doesn't have to be state, local government or federal government. It can be a commercial government, B2B or B2C. But the point being is the government's not in the business of buying products and services if you can't prove that you've never had to sell or perform to that product or service before. A lot of people look at the federal government as a starting point. I look at it as it's, it is a continuation point, meaning the business has been in existence for some period of time, been filing tax records, has been existing, good corporate citizen, shows it exists for a period of one, two years. And in that period of time, obviously, 
you're performing work for a client base, that client base is obviously got to be relevant to the federal government. Otherwise, you're not going to have the past performance to build onto. So the first kind of rule of thumb is, yes, price is important with the federal government for your services or your product, but the risk variable, the confidence level that you're not going to screw up is just as important in most cases in price. And that all comes from your capabilities, your past performance, which can be boiled down into your references. And oh, by the way, those are required elements in bidding any federal state contract. They're always going to ask for your references, always going to ask for past performance, and they're always going to check those references. So if I am a janitorial services firm, I should not be in bidding software engineering just because I, I'm a, I'm a you know, hobbyist that programs on my off time, right? Okay. Because that's not the core business that that's not where your past performance is going to sit. So it's the same thought process as you look at the universe of opportunities. All of them are going to sound appealing. All of them have dollar signs around it. But it really matters on what past performance you can demonstrate because that's going to mitigate the risk. So, so you know, obviously there's, I understand that there's hurdles that a business will go through, you know, to do this. Um, you've mentioned some of them. Can you elaborate a little bit more to, to some of the other hurdles that someone would face getting into the government contract arena? Sure. I think that I can... Again, boil those down in probably four nice bite-sized nuggets. The one is knowing what the rules are. Uh, a lot of firms that get into the federal, state, local government don't understand what the rules are. Or by the rules, there are these things called federal acquisition regulations, FAR, uh, or the FAR, as it's called in the industry. And that FAR, F-A-R, those regulations define what you're allowed to do, how you have to comply in federal procurements. It's a book. It's about probably 600 pages thick. But those are basically the rules of the game. So the first thing you need to do is understand if you're in the, the domestic, non-defense sector, it's called the Federal Acquisition Regulations. And if you're in the defense side of the house, it's called the Defense Federal Acquisition Regulations, DFAR. And both of those are kind of like, you know, if you play Monopoly, you open up the box and you get the instructions. The FAR, the DFAR, those are your instructions. So that's the first step is if you're going to play the game, you know how the rules are. Secondly, if you're going to play the game, you have to know who's on your team and who you're playing against. So you have to adequately define your market, what you offer and who your competitors are to know how you fill that void. Um, the third one is understanding your run an RFP. Um, there are programs out there that will train you on how to navigate proposals, business development, capture processes. I would suggest simply starting with reviewing an RFP, a request for proposal, and understanding what that means. And within the RFP, there's two core sections. One is the evaluation criteria, and the other one is the submittal requirements, i.e. the instructions to submit, and understanding what those are. So if you do those three things, you understand who your competitive you know, environment is, you know what the rules are, and you know how to navigate an RFP, those three things combined with you know, having the past performance to mitigate risk is going to put you on a pathway to win work. Great, great. You know, so as the person is overcoming some of these hurdles and, and things like that, um, you know, trying to get in and trying to build that relationship with uh, between their business and, and government agencies, how do they go about trying to build that relationship? Sure. So I'm going to make an assumption that most folks that view your content are going to be small businesses. Those small businesses have an advocate in each federal agency. So if you look at the federal government, and there's 13 cabinet agencies, and let's just focus on State Department and Department of Security as a big two examples that everybody knows exist. The Defense Department would be an easy third. Those organizations have a specific office of small business development and utilization, OSBDU. That person that sits at that desk in that agency, their sole reason for existence, the only reason he or she collects a paycheck is to advocate for small business. So being a small business and initiating that as your contact point within each federal agency, remember there's over 13 of these type offices and these agencies, those are 13 different access points into the federal government. That's the first way. The second way is through partnering, identifying firms that have had success within that sector or that agency 
and reaching out to those firms to explore teaming possibilities, mentor-protege relationships, uh, subcontracting opportunities. Again, like in life, most of the time, the answer is going to be no. But 10% of the time, you're going to get a response. So if you reach out to 10 folks, odds are somebody is going to open open the door and be willing to help. It's that proactive outreach to both the government and to the industry that establishes those relationships. You can't expect, and this is a big common issue for folks that, that newly incorporate, get registered on SAM, and maybe they carry a service disabled designation or an 8A minority designation on the type of business they have. They expect the government to pick up the phone and start calling them for opportunities. Right. Nothing magical is going to happen unless you go out and find it. I assure you the heavens don't open up and contracts fall out of the sky. It still requires a lot of blocking and tackling, which is the hard work. And all the things we talked about, the FAR, the rules, the registration, the hardest point, the barrier that most people butt up against and struggle with is just being the proactive outreach communications person that's required in the, in the initial stages of this to develop critical mass and, and traction. So the intent is to reach out to the Office of Small Business Development as a starting point. Now, where does where does your company fit into all of this, and and how do you guys help small business, you know, get there and get contracts awarded? Sure. So, in a number of ways. So, assuming that all the things I've described either exceed the capacity of an organization, or they simply don't want to do it, or they might not have the experience to do it, mm-hmm. firms engage us to basically do what I've described. So my firm does a whole host of things, but in the context of what we're talking about, it does proposal writing, proposal management, and capture. Capture being relationship building and opportunity identification so that you can vet it and bid it if you want to go after a certain opportunity. Um, The way we do it is we work with clients on finding things to bid, finding partners to bid, vetting the opportunities, actually writing the proposals, doing the pricing, making sure they're compliant, or even afterward to make sure that they're performing to the standards of the contract to proactive afterward quality control. So in essence, my firm should be viewed as an advisory firm, not only to help firms win federal, state, local, overseas contract, you know, that might be commercial centric or might be, you know, an institution like the UN or State Department or foreign ministries or trade, whatever it is, to win that work and then also be able to maintain that work so you don't fail and suddenly have no past performance to win future work. So how we're usually identified is through firms that have identified an opportunity. Or we have clients, we have very large clients in the healthcare sector, for example, that know there's opportunity within the federal and state governments, but they're not situated in such a manner they deal with hospitals or insurance companies where they don't have the mechanical uh, nuts and bolts to go after that work. And that's what we do. And so we develop pipelines for them, subject matter expertise for them, uh, opportunities and meetings with the government on, on their behalf. And again, the mandate there is, hey, we want to be in this space. We don't know what that looks like. Put together a plan and execute that plan. So we do everything from that very uh, opaque and murky structure to very defined. Here's a proposal. Do it 15 days. Help me bid it and win it. So that's kind of how firms find us is simply when the opportunity presents itself and so they make the conclusion that it's something either we have the expertise in-house. Uh, we've been doing this for 25 plus years and they don't want to they don't want to learn as they go. They don't want a high learning curve. They want success faster or quicker or in a broader scale. And so they'll make that investment in the initial term by working with us. Gotcha. So what are some of the common mistakes that these businesses are making? Obviously, not not hiring a firm like you to help them with this process, but, but what are some of the other mistakes? Yeah, that I think making? the big one. Sure. I think I think the big one is learning as you go. So I say that with a smile on my face because it's it's a common theme on a daily basis. The government and that and I hope I don't get struck by lightning by saying this, but the government's not out to help industry. The government is there to conduct business. So the government's going to assume that, A, you know the rules, B, you've read the requirements, and C, you know what you're signing up for as a result of A and B. But what happens is firms 
that don't know use the I don't know as the excuse. And what happens is they end up going out of business because the government takes the position. If you register in SAM, if you're going to bid the work, if you're going to submit me a price, our assumption is you know what the hell you're doing. So when you win work and then you say, oh, my bad, I didn't realize this is what this said. Now that you're interpreting, that is a problem. And what the reason organizations fail is they don't they don't absorb the context and the, the nuance. This is not like selling to you know a, a B2B environment in the sense that normal rules of commerce apply. There are very strict and, and, and clear rules in a federal procurement environment, federal, state, local for that matter, even overseas, that are much different in how you're evaluated, how you perform work, how you can provide bonuses and salaries for your employees, how you can increase wages, what you do with turnover. All those things have very restrictive uh, requirements. The nice side is these contracts are for five years. So once you get an award, you have a five-year annuity that's predictable. The problem is you have to know what you're signing up for. Otherwise, you're going to have five years of a nightmare because you're not going to be able to get out of it unless you fail. And if you fail, you'll never win another federal contract. So I guess what I'm saying is where we find clients that run to us the most because of issues they've had is on the learning curve. I didn't know this. Now we're in hot water. Please help me get out of hot water. I would prefer that that not be the case. And so my yeah. advice to your, your audience is go in eyes open, understand the rules of the game, understand the, the dynamics. And if you don't know, ask. There's no harm in asking the government, asking industry or asking a guy like me, shoot me an email. It doesn't even have to be a consultant engagement. It could be, hey, what does this mean in this RFP? Have you ever seen something like this? Odds are I will answer the question because I don't have a monopoly on the truth. Odds are you might know something I don't know. So have an open willingness to learn, I guess is the best way to explain it, because not knowing is not a good answer. Right. Now, I mean, obviously, I mean, you, you guys do a lot of, of stuff with federal, state, and local governments, and they said overseas. So um, is there any uh, jurisdictions that you're not able to help people in? No. I mean, we. I, you're talking to a guy that's been probably in every single war zone that's been in the history books in the last 10 years for, for, for clients, to much of my family's displeasure. Uh, and it's because I believe that we go where the work is. And so um, we do over 500 client engagements a year. <clears throat> of those 500, probably 60% are within the federal government space, probably you know, 20, 30% are within the state and local, and probably 10% are, are overseas. And by overseas, most of those fall within um, you know, a ministry of trade, transportation, commerce within a, a foreign government like in Morocco. Or we've done work with NATO and the United Nations during COVID pandemic response and the World Health Organization. So it really depends. But there are not uh, any structural limitations for our ability to help firms win work. That's for sure. Do you see um, the landscape of, of government contracting and things like, do you see this changing anytime soon? Or, or do you think it's going to be more status quo? I think that's a very deep, astute question. It's changing all the time. Sometimes it changes back to what it was before it changed the last time because the government's a very inefficient organism. Um, but I see the competitive pressure is increasing. I think as the technology improves people's access to view and see RFPs, for example, I mean, go back 10 years ago, uh, we're talking about requests for proposal that you and I can go online and access. 10 years ago, uh, getting an RFP was like finding gold in your backyard. They were very difficult to find, even though you knew they were there. So because of that, democratization of government contracting, the amount of competitive pressure has increased. But because of that, the vo volume of opportunities also increased because the government views industry 
as a way to offset the size of government. So as, as folks retire out, out of government, historically it's been, let's use industry to offset that labor because what they've learned is carrying a large labor force for the government is a very inefficient and, and very rigid way to administer public policy. So in most cases, it's been meandering down a path of increased competitive pressure with increased um, awareness on cost. You know, cost has become more of a driver in awards than say best value historically. But for the most part, it's been pretty consistent. It's just the volume of bidders has increased. And because of that, the noise associated with not understanding what the rules are or not understanding how to be compliant, you're, we're dealing with, you know, in some cases, we might get 100 bidders and 70 of them will get tossed because they didn't even follow the rules. And right. so while the, the volume of competitors have increased, I don't necessarily think the quality of the offer has increased, which is why the government, you know, you know our firms, for example, tend to have a high degree of successes we go in and we don't make those rookie mistakes as other firms that are just either starting or trying to figure this out, kind of replicate those mistakes over and over again. So on average, pretty steady state with some nuance different in, in competitive environment. Great. So Richard, you know, we've covered a lot of stuff here in a short period of time. What have I not asked you that you wish I had? Oh, I think the, you know, the attributes of a successful firm and a successful client of ours what that looks like, I think your audience would would probably want to know. Okay, the firms that have done this, why have they been successful? And there's, you know, we did a, a study of our client base, you know, every year for the last ten years of thousands of respondents, and on, on average, the firms that are most successful are the ones that are the best at time management. And this sounds like a ridiculous answer, but it's very intuitive when you think about it. when you're bidding work, when you're writing something, when you're doing a project of any kind. Uh, the logic dictates that the more time you have to think, the more time you have to review something, the better the quality of that deliverable would be it to an internal deliverable, be it to a client or be it to the federal government. So if we transpose what I just said and put it in the context of responding to a proposal, which it's not rocket science, the government gets you instructions, but it's done so within a crucible pressure that is we want to win. There's other people that are competing against us and at a fine amount of time to do it. The, the, the default position of humanity, in my opinion, is Let's maximize the amount of time we're allowed to work on this and we'll submit it the day it's due. But what I just said, though, means in most people's minds that you're going to be writing this thing up until the 11th hour of it being due. The problem is you've not structured enough freedom in your brain to be able to effectively review this thing, not once, not twice, but three times. And so think about it from the standpoint of when we were all writing papers in high school or college. Obviously, the more time I had to, to review my own work, the better grade I was probably going to get. So the, the question that should be asked is, why do some firms win and some firms don't? All else being equal, if we have two identical firms bidding at the identical thing with a different process, why would one win and why would one not win? And the reason why one wins and one doesn't, with all things being equal, is the amount of time they allow for the review process of the work that they're writing for. So, for example, when we write proposals, if it's a six-week turnaround, we'll have the proposal written in the first week, and we will be in review stages for the next five weeks. Now, granted... There will be writing involved in the next five weeks, but the customer, the client is giving feedback on the content in its totality, not once, not twice, not three times, but upwards of four times within a six-week time limit, right? It's a much different answer than how most of your audience is going to view this and look at how they respond to proposals because they don't have the capacity, they don't have the time, or they don't have the subject matter expertise to structure it that way because they're multiple hatting people to do a day job plus write plus be a subject matter expert. Our approach and what most clients and customers and your audience should ask is, what can I change to improve my probability of growing revenue so that my effort increases the probability of success, which increases the exponential growth of the revenue I generate? So the answer at the final analysis is 
Give yourself time to think and use that think time to edit and approve and apply that consistently in a process that protects that time just as you would protect the due date for the submittal of the actual work itself. So longer answer, I know, but that's a big sticking point with us is it's counterintuitive. It seems so simple, yet nobody does it because everybody wants to win when that means let's work 16 hour days for six weeks. Never mind the fact that it's reviewing because no one's writing when we review because the document has to stop to review and that's wasted time. It's actually the exact opposite. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that's, you know, some wise words, especially, I mean, you know, again, you've been doing this for over 25 years, so you have the experience in it. And I think that that's where, you know, people really need to do is look for somebody who has the experience in doing this to help them be successful. Right. Yeah. So it's it's a subtle twist. Yep. Right. Right. If people like what they hear and Richard, they want to reach out to you guys, how can they, how can they find you? How can they reach out to you? So the best way to find us is via our website. It's just www.rwco.io. Not that hard to remember. Thank goodness. And that way you'll find the contact information. The other way is just do it via um, LinkedIn or email. Um, but you'll find all that on our website. Again, it's just the rwco.io. It even rhyme. There you go. But yeah, that's the best way to find us. And then just shoot me an email and we'll figure it out from there. Great. Hey, I really appreciate your time today. I think that our listeners have, have learned a lot. Um, I know I've learned a lot you know, about this and uh, really appreciate your time today. Oh, thank you for doing this. I enjoyed it immensely. Thanks. Great. Hey, this week, my guest was Richard Wagner, who is the CEO of RWCO. I'll see you guys next week. 49 faces looked to him in triumph. Over the last 12 months, they had each taken turns and promoted his business for a week at a time, driving over $987,342 in revenue. What if you had a network of 50 centers of influence who promoted your business every week for a year? Grab your copy of the number one Amazon best-selling book, The Ultimate Guide to Growing Your Business with a Podcast, at 33% off the Amazon price by going to ultimatepodcastbook.com. Again, that website for 33% off the Amazon price is ultimatepodcastbook.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.